Welcome to Thinking Like a Lawyer with your hosts, Ellie Mistal and Joe Patrice, talking about legal news and pop culture, all while thinking like a lawyer, here on Legal Talk Network. Hello, welcome to another edition of Thinking Like a Lawyer. I'm Joe Patrice from Above the Law. With me, as always, is my co-host, the esteemed Mr. Ellie. Mr. Ellie, that's yeah. who I am now. It's I I'm mean, sick. you just don't want to get Ill. in fairness. I was about to say your last name, but then you leaned forward in the mic, and I thought you were about to talk, and I didn't want to talk over you. So about to cough is what yeah. I was about to do. Okay, fair enough. No, I got sick. Okay, it's the subject of my grinding of the gears. Oh, Dayquil. Yeah. Well, on I got sick on the damn plane. Actually, I probably also got people sick on the plane on okay. the way back. But on the way there, okay. I got sick. because. And here's, here's my problem today, Joe. And other people have noted this, but if you fly a lot, you've probably noticed that the airlines have a new technique to screw you, the, the customer, right? And it's by offering this like lower fare economy class ticket that mm-hmm. doesn't allow you to pick your seat. Oh, yeah. And you have to pay like $100 more to be able to get the ticket that actually allows you to pick your seat. Right. So I, I know about this this trick. Well, my wife knows about this trick, and so we avoid it quite often. But when I am sometimes flying for business, as I was this week, um, I went out to L.A. to, to do a First Amendment uh, talk at Berkeley Law School. You know, the, the nice people who, 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 <laughs> who bought my ticket did not know about this trick. So the ticket, which I was happy uh, to be provided, didn't let me pick my seat. Yeah, which means that I had choice A flying cross countries, and just for those who haven't actually met me, I am an over three hundred pound African American male. I don't need to be in a middle seat for six goddamn hours on a flight, but I couldn't pick my seat. So my choices were to buy one of those exit row seats uh-huh. for a cross country flight for like one hundred fifty dollars, or chill out in the middle seat like a sardine shoved into a Tupperware can. I just feel like if there was an emergency, you wouldn't you wouldn't stick around to help people off the plane. Oh hell no. Yeah, see I think I would not, not be prepared to do those duties. I think you're not prepared to be in the exit row. I'm not trying to go down with the ship. Okay, so you sat in the middle. It's just no, I paid the hundred fifty dollars. Um Okay. And then start coughing on people and then didn't feel bad about it because fuck them. Um mm-hmm. I think the point that I'm trying to make is that, you know, huh. when you there are certain fine print kind of things that as lawyers we are kind of understand and trained to to protect ourselves from. Uh-huh. But not every part of our lives are we the ones in control over, right? And so these fine print boilerplate bullcrap can still affect us even as lawyers because not everybody reads the fine print. Mm-hmm. And sometimes you have people acting on your behalf nicely, yeah. trying to be helpful, who don't read the fine print. And end up screwing you because of the fine print. Yeah. It should be stopped. It should be made illegal. I'm not sure there's fine print in it, this. I, it's, they, they, it should they never be you. allowed to happen. I mean, they tell you pretty upfront that you're not getting a C. No, they don't tell you that. They really don't. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, when you book it, it says, like, oh, this this class. You're, deferring, you, you're defending the airline industry now. I'm not. I'm not. I'm saying that anybody who books a ticket is pretty clued in that you're not getting to choose a seat. In, in, in fact, when you book the ticket, you don't get 
to hit the seat selection button, which is a pretty glaring sign. I'm pre- no, I'm sure that the good people who booked my ticket for me know this because on the way back they booked me a ticket with with uh, that I had my own seat. Okay, so they maybe. so they did not understand, you know, because they you know they they didn't understand that one leg of the fare that they booked, which was cheaper, didn't come with the seat assignment, and the back leg did come with a seat assignment. Um, so how much did you pay? One fifty. I mean, I paid zero because uh, well, I paid one fifty for the upgrade. Yeah, I think upgrade it, into the exit row that I wasn't willing to perform. Yeah, I think the I think that's a seventy five dollar upgrade, which means you, uh, you probably bought both ways upgraded, which is why on your when no you no it was in. when I checked in it was I already saw it on my itinerary it was checked in I was checked on the way back and on the way there. Here's the lawyer question before we get out of here. All right, on this, when they ask, are you willing to perform your these duties? Yes. If you are lying. When you say yes, is that actionable in any way? I I wouldn't imagine it's like I don't know who the private right of action. Uh, the, this uh, this I mean re- I think it is a regulatory violation, but I don't know. It reminded where. me of uh, before marriage. I, I went to if, I was Catholic, so if you're Catholic, you can marry in church. You have to go to religious instruction. And it's totally bullshit. I only did it for the trumpets. I wanted to get married in the church uh-huh. because it was a pretty church, and so like I had to do the the training. And so my priest, which I had had, you know, whatever, he's my priest. He says to me and my wife during the training, um, well, you know, you know the, the church's position on birth control. And we were both like, yes, Father. And he's like, well, good, because, you know, some people take crazy pills to stop God's will. And we were like, yes, well, we wouldn't do that, Father. Even though clearly we were going to do that in fact did do that so after I mean, you should have just said we are planning to just have abortions every time so after See what he did. after we got married i felt the need to go to confession to confess that i lied to the priest during my 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 religious training oh wow and so that made me kind of feel like that's they reminded me of that when this woman in the exit row was like oh are you willing to perform these duties and i'm all like six i'm like i'm clearly not helping a damn soul. I just felt like I should. Maybe this is my this this podcast is now my confession. I I I lied to the stewardess. I was not willing to perform my duties. I was willing to take crazy pills just so my soul is as light as possible. Should I need uh, entrance past Saint Peter? Wow, Catholicism will 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 fuck you up, man. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, let's. On that note, uh, transition here real quick. So today's episode is brought to you by your dog, who's very mad at you and thinking about running away to the country, all because you're still at the office slogging through an endless doc review project. Make better decisions, keep your pet, and work smarter with Logical, an e-discovery software that gets you started in minutes. Law practice is rough. Oh, my God. Create your free account today at Logical.com forward slash ATL. That's Logic with a K, C-U-L-L dot com forward slash ATL. You, you don't have to read the rough that way. You don't, you don't, have, to, you don't have to make the sound. Mm. Yeah, you, no, I, 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 uh, I felt as though it conveyed what it was trying to convey there. That's not, that's not part of the, that's not part of the, the read. I mean, none of it was technically part of the read. I, I rewrote the, the copy because I thought I just you wanted You rewrote to, the copy? Oh, I wrote this because I, I wanted a different animal. We've done the cat a few times, so I thought maybe if I take the exact same concept of the ad read, spice it up a little bit. You know, oh this is the sort of service that I'm willing to provide. This is my life. Yeah. Let's bring on our guest. Yeah. I, Go for it. Um, today, listeners, 
Um, we are joined by Mark Joseph Stern. He is the legal correspondent for Slate, um, which is a fantastic online publication that I hope you all read. He is the author of American Justice 2019, The Roberts Courts Arrives. It's a very good book about basically everything that happened last year at the Supreme Court, really getting into the backstory um, of how these cases kind of presented themselves to the Roberts Court, and really examines the critical role John Roberts played um, in last year's term, and has some thoughts about how roles he might play in this year's term. Mark, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me on. I loved hearing all of those weird straight people stories beforehand. <laughs> uh, I, I, I feel like um, getting married in a Catholic church is a heterosexist microaggression, uh, but I'll, I'll accept your apology off the air. <laughs> Um, no, fair enough. It was. It's in fairness, it was terrible for all. Um, <laughs> but dude, the trumpets at my wedding were so like they hit the raft. It was amazing. Anyway. Oh no, and they don't allow trumpets at any other kind of church. I not that I was aware of. Fair, fair enough. Um, Mark, you wrote a book about last year's term, and you really focused on John Roberts's role in shaping what our legal system is going forward. Um, can you give us just a brief or overview of how you view Roberts? Because I feel like there are quite a few people who view Roberts as some kind of swing vote, some kind of centrist that can kind of save us from the Trump, from the full excesses of the Trump era. That's not the portrait of Roberts I get from your book. No, absolutely not. So it, it's a bit of a contradiction because Roberts is the swing vote on the court, but he is not a swing voter. Roberts is at the center of the court, but he is not a centrist. When Justice Anthony Kennedy retired, the Supreme Court lost its actual swing vote, uh, by which I mean a justice who actually swings from one side to the other. Kennedy, love him or hate him, he would swing very far to the right in some cases, like Citizens United, and then he would swing very far to the left in other cases, like Obergefell establishing a, a constitutional right for same-sex couples to marry. There is no swing vote today. The Justice Brett Kavanaugh is not a swing vote. He is an arch-conservative. And while Roberts is very conservative, too, he does have a deep concern for the institutional legitimacy of the Supreme Court. And so from time to time in a very small set of cases, it is possible uh, for progressives to persuade Roberts to kind of inch toward the center from the far right wing and sort of throw breadcrumbs to liberals. And liberals always get down on their knees and lick up the breadcrumbs and say, oh, thank mm -hmm. you so much, Mr. Chief Justice, because they have such low expectations. What kind of arguments do progressives need to make to sway Roberts? Because, you know, as, as you talk about, like, there were people who thought Trump v. Hawaii was going to go the progressive way, right? That well, didn't work out. Not um, me, for the record, but yes. For the record, right? <laughs> uh, and uh, I, I, am, I am on the record of thinking that I, I, I thought we had a better chance in Hawaii than, than we turned out to have. So he doesn't – the progressive arguments failed um, in Trump v. Hawaii. They, they succeeded in something like the census case. What kind of arguments do you think Roberts is persuadable by? So it 
almost always goes to this question of institutional legitimacy, right? Roberts has said, I don't want to be the chief justice who wrecked the Supreme Court. He knows that the Supreme Court does not have an army to enforce its rulings. It really sort of relies on magical thinking to make sure its decisions stick. And if the court loses its legitimacy and the political branches just start ignoring it, that's a real problem and not one that the court can necessarily fix on its own. And so the key to understanding Roberts, I think, is that he really wants to rule for the conservative side, for the Republican side, in essentially every case. But sometimes yeah. that side screws the pooch so badly that he just cannot bear to sign his name to their handiwork and agree uh, with the garbage that they have brought him. So, you know, Trump v. Hawaii, this is the travel ban case you're talking about. I never had any hope that Roberts would rule the right way because, yes, the first travel ban was horribly sloppy. And if it had gotten to the courts in that form, maybe Roberts would have ruled the right way. But by the time it actually got to the chief justice on the merits, it was the third iteration of the travel ban. All of these lawyers and security experts had sort of papered over the obvious anti-Muslim bias behind the ban with all of this BS about how it was necessary for the national interest and the national security. And the president is just trying to protect American citizens and blah, blah, blah. And it was more than enough for Roberts to say, sure, I'll pretend to believe that. That's enough for me. The opposite ended up happening in the census citizenship case, which is what I think we'll talk about today. Uh, the Trump administration was so bad at lying about its motivations in that case that I think it embarrassed Roberts. And he recognized that if he pretended to believe Trump, that he would really kind of lower the court's place in the public eye, that he would kind of humiliate the court. And so he just, in the end, wasn't able to rule for the conservatives in that case. It, it feels to me sometimes that what's important about Roberts is that he gives America and how Roberts does these things is that he gives America the opportunity to look into a mirror and figure out exactly where the lines are uh, <laughs> because of the way, like you said, about institutional legitimacy. Well, part of that is you can get over a lot institutionally if it's an issue that people care about, but he's kind of exposing the cracks that sometimes get sucked up and papered over in electoral decisions because obviously coalition building, whatever. But he's really showing where America says like, oh, Muslim bans, I guess that's not enough to rise to the ire of that being an institutional problem. Uh, so I, I think the importance of him is the way in which he's kind of exposing fault lines that I think some people might not see if they say, hey, we elected a black president. I'm sure we don't care about race anymore. And Roberts is right there to go, no, I've decided that getting rid of voting rights is not over the line institutionally. <laughs> People are not going to go to war over that. People are not going to care about the Supreme Court being, you know, illegitimate over that, which I think is something that I think is exactly what you were talking about, about where he has this limited interest and it's in legitimacy. And I think the problem is what constitutes legitimacy is, is what we're getting to see kind of beneath the surface of. Absolutely. And yeah. it, it's it's really difficult to craft an argument around legitimacy that will persuade the chief justice. Uh, I'm certainly not the only person to see this pattern in his votes. And a lot of advocates are trying to frame their cases as challenges to the court's legitimacy. But most of the time, Roberts is willing to sort of 
follow his conservative Republican instincts to their logical outcome. For instance, last term's case or two terms ago now, Janice, right? Uh, Crushing public sector unions by overturning laws in 22 states in the District of Columbia that simply allow uh, unions in the public sector to collect fair share fees from workers to cover the cost of collective bargaining. This is not a big deal. This is not a threat to any constitutional value. This is unions saying, hey, we're bargaining over your ability to take breaks and go to the bathroom and have health care. So we're going to collect a few nickels from your paycheck to make sure we can keep doing that. And John Roberts joins an opinion that says that is a dire threat to freedom of speech. It's compelled <laughs> political speech. These laws must end right now. The unions should be grateful for the windfall they've had so far these you know these these evil conspiracies basically it's a fox news decision right it could have come out of of, of bill o'reilly and to roberts no problem at all he doesn't think that's a threat to the court's legitimacy and frankly based on the limited fallout from janice i think he might have been right 40 years of precedent is a real question of legitimacy right up until it isn't Yep. Yeah, I mean, yep. look, my, my take is that Roberts, I mean, going along with what you guys are already saying, it's, it's that Roberts doesn't want to be Roger Tawney, right? Like, mm-hmm. he doesn't want to go down as, as a guy who started a war. And anything less than that, if he believes that it's less than that, he's going to go for. But Mark, to your point about how advocates are trying to craft their arguments to make a legitimacy challenge that Roberts generally is willing to wave away, it seems like if you're a progressive, what the real hope is not that your advocates are going to persuade Roberts. It's that the other side is going to be just that dumb. And that's really, I think, the lesson of the census case, right? Like that the Republican side, the conservative side, was just too dumb for even Roberts to stomach. It's nothing that the progressives did to convince him. It's that the conservatives screwed the pooch. Totally. I mean, the census win is not a kind of durable strategy for the progressive movement because it it only happened, the chief justice only joined the, the liberals to block the citizenship question on the 2020 census because the Trump administration was so incredibly stupid in going about this conspiracy uh, to add the citizenship question and pretend like they were doing it to enforce the Voting Rights Act. And so bad about lying under oath in court, which they did over and over again, by the way, not that yeah. it seems to matter anymore, uh, but they were so bad at crafting these lies and keeping their stories straight. I mean, you can read different depositions and it's clear that they did not think they would face serious scrutiny, but they basically what happened is progressives got a great judge in New York, U.S. District Judge Jesse Furman. He really drilled down in discovery and all of these lies and all of this mendacity surfaced and it all proved that the citizenship question was designed to basically uh, uh, lower the response rate from immigrants and and Hispanics, to uh, deprive them of representation, to boost white voting power, and that the Voting Rights Act explanation was a laughable pretext. And John Roberts looked at all of this evidence, a veritable mountain of evidence, and said, at the end of the day, I just can't approve of this. I cannot pretend like I'm not seeing what I'm seeing. And I, I don't think there will ever be another case like that, because at a bare minimum, I think that most of Trump's bureaucrats and Confederates are smarter than Wilbur Ross, the Secretary of (laughs) Commerce, who was sort of the ringmaster of this when he wasn't dozing off uh, at meetings. And uh, I think that 
moving forward, it's going to be a lot more difficult to find these cracks in the facade of pretext. Yeah, so I I was going to ask a different question, but since you brought up Trump's henchmen, what's uh, again? This isn't really in your book, but what's your impression of Noel Francisco? Is he as henchmen go? Is he particularly effective? Is he particularly ineffective? Um, is he just a mere functionary that's playing with a rigged hand? And he already knows he's going to win. I think he's really effective. Um, I, I think he's excellent at arguing. I actually sort of enjoy watching him in a perverse way. I mean, it's masochistic because he's making these horrible arguments that are totally dishonest uh, and and quite often built on falsehoods. Um, But he's good at doing that and he's good (laughs) at taking... He's good at lying! (laughs) He's a good liar and there's a certain art to that that I guess just I, I have to kind of step back and say, all right, hat off to you, Mr. Francisco. Like, you you pulled that off nicely. But he is good at sort of giving the justices the outs that they need to believe his lies. I mean, his performance in the census citizenship case was brilliant in its smooth mendacity because he just said, look, you know, this is just about the Administrative Procedure Act. We don't have to get down into the weeds here. All we're doing is looking at what's on the record. We don't have to get into all of these depositions and whatever. And as we now know, he initially won over the chief justice, right? Joan right, Biscupe right. has he was gonna win. He was going to win that. That he was going to win that. Roberts sided with the administration before changing his mind. And so I think he is, he is more than just another Trump functionary. Uh, I think he's extremely cynical. I think he enjoys the challenge of defending these rather indefensible executive actions. And I think that he knows on some level that he's sort of playing the justices, that he's hoping they'll be suckers, uh, and that he, he really is likely to win in almost every case. I I have to say this because you're going to think I'm crazy, but it's true. I swear to you that right before Francisco stood up to argue the DACA case uh, recently, he Uh looked straight at me and winked. I promise you. I know it sounds crazy, but I really think, and he's, he's so funny. He slouches down his chair. His hair is a mess. He looks like this weird, like lounge lizard who's like four drinks in and about to do karaoke. He's such a strange dude. It sounds like uh, the George W. Bush, like, uh, we got to stop these terrorists. Now watch this drive, right? Like, just, <laughs> just exactly. Wants, he, it's, like, it's, it's like the perfect criminal. He wants somebody that can appreciate what he's about to pull off. Yeah. And you were the somebody. You, you were the <laughs> audience eye in that situation. Apparently so. Uh, and, you, you know, look, I thought he did a, a, a great job as a performer. I thought it was disgusting what he was arguing. But procedurally, you know, he pulled it off. That's amazing. Mark, I want to get you out here on this. And I know your book is about Roberts. And again, for, for those listening, it's American Justice 2019. The Roberts Court arrives. I want to get you out of here on this, though. Your discussion of the death penalty cases that happened last year um, was fascinating to me because it really kind of focused in on Brett Kavanaugh, our newest Supreme Court justice, hopefully our newest Supreme Court justice for a while, Mark Wood. What the fuck does Kavanaugh believe about the death penalty because I think he did a really good job of explaining how he's kind of all over the map and and just to preview what I think before I let you answer like I to me one of my worst fears about Brett Kavanaugh who has been credibly accused of attempted rape and other uh, sexual misconduct is that when you kind of 
dive into some of his ethical allegations, what he presents to me as is one of those classic hangers-on toxic male guys you know like he's not the leader of the party he's not the leader of the bum rush but he's the guy in the background always happy to cheer along and kind of would like to participate but doesn't always know how to get in there um (laughs) and so i find him to be like eminently persuadable by what the cool kids are doing and when you look at his death penalty decisions last year it really seems like Sometimes he thought Gorsuch was the cool kid. Sometimes he thought Roberts was the cool kids. But as opposed to having any kind of core belief himself, he was just trying to figure out if he wanted to please Gorsuch or please Roberts at any given moment or, you know, or please Thomas or or whoever. Do you think that Kavanaugh has a core belief or ideology about the death penalty? Or is it just what I think this kind of pathetic beta male I just want to be the guy riding shotgun with my boys. <laughs> uh, very vividly put. I'm, I'm glad you <laughs> said that because I have been observing Kavanaugh for more than a year now, frequently in person as, as he's you know, performing on the bench. And the one thing I feel like I know for sure is that this is a dude who wants to be popular. Even after <laughs> everything that he went through and his horrific performance at the Christine Blasey Ford hearings, he still wants approval, not just from Republicans and conservatives, but from everybody. He wants to be liked. He does not want to be scorned or despised, even by people he may perceive to be uh, his enemies. And that really separates him out from Neil Gorsuch, who is a nihilist, who does not care what or the Clarence Thomas, who went through arguably what Kavanaugh went through and came out like all the more bitter and just, you know, uh, vengeful because of it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Dolly Lithwick, my colleague, described him as a one-man vengeance machine. Clarence Thomas truly is that. <laughs> Kavanaugh is not that. Um, he is persuadable, but the factors that go into persuasion of Brett Kavanaugh are, are still obscure to me. One thing I know is that he doesn't want to be seen as bloodthirsty or barbaric or intolerant of religious minorities. And all of that sort of came into play during these death penalty disputes where the justices were so angry at each other, right? Just firing these missives back and forth, these poison pen letters. And you frequently had Kavanaugh in the middle trying to find some kind of common ground. And the big flip, the the, the illustration of Kavanaugh craving popularity, in my view, was during this, uh, this dispute over having a spiritual advisor in the execution chamber, right? So Alabama would not let this Muslim inmate have access to his imam when he was killed. Alabama said it's a Christian chaplain or nothing. And the five conservative justices allowed Alabama to execute him under that rule, didn't stop the execution. Kagan issued this blistering dissent joined by the other liberals. Uh, A bunch of editorials came out, including in places like the National Review, really condemning the, the conservatives' decision, saying religious equality is important, even if it's not just for Christians. And then a few months later, when Texas wanted to execute a Buddhist inmate and denied him access to his spiritual advisor and said, you can only have a Christian chaplain. Guess what happened? Kavanaugh flipped and Kavanaugh joins with the liberals and blocks the execution and uh, has this totally pretextual reason for this flip. But the, the 
actual reason is very obvious, which is he didn't like everyone screaming at him after the Muslim guy got killed. He does not want to be seen as a total asshole. And he wanted to kind of bask in the glow of praise that he knew he would receive if he blocked this execution. That's my read on him. It's maybe a little shallow, but I don't think he's that deep of a dude in the first place. I mean, it's so weird, though, because, I mean, we are trained as 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 lawyers and as legal pundits and as people who watch this stuff. We're trained to kind of understand that the court doesn't give a damn about, you know, their clippings. They don't get high on their own supply. That's the benefit of having a lifetime appointment. And we honestly, we, we are trained to feel that, like, Gorsuch just doesn't care what you say about him. He's there for life, yo. Same with, you know, Roberts. Sometimes as they get older, we understand they have a little concern about, Legacy like. Legacy stuff, yeah. You know, how right. they'll be viewed by the by history and on the, you know, in stone tablets. But kind of, you know, day to day, they don't really give a damn. Your contention, and I think mine too, is that Kavanaugh seems to, like, he's reading the National Review at least, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Which I guess that's better than the Federalist, right? Yeah. He's, he's at least getting a little David French from time to time. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I mean, that's why Gorsuch strikes me as to the extent there is any kind of a swing where you could engage in kind of litigatory strategic essentialism. Like, you could aim for Gorsuch with some, like, bullshit, like, this is really a core libertarian value and like really try and get him to be because he doesn't care about anything but his firm belief that Ayn Rand was right or whatever the hell. And you can just go for that. Like, like, I don't think it's a, a viable strategy to win all the time, but I almost feel like that's the one that you could almost swing because he doesn't care. You know? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. No, Gors- you know, as, as and Mark, Joe and I talk about this a lot on the show, but like the danger of Gorsuch is that he believes this crap, right? Yeah. Like, like Scalia and Thomas, they kind of knew that originalism was really just an agenda, a way to get the Republican ideology through. But Gorsuch kind of hatched as he was, you know, almost like incubated by the Federal Society, actually has the the misfortune or sometimes fortune of actually believing that originalism is a thing. And so sometimes you can maybe persuade him on straight up originalist and textualist um grounds you know corrupt the, the, though they may be yes although not in cases with real partisan valence right you're right, not going right, to get him right, on right. the next bush v gore or even something about guns or campaign finance or abortion right but on these smaller issues, especially criminal justice, Gorsuch's vote is absolutely gettable uh, and has been gotten. There have been a number of five to four decisions with Gorsuch joining the liberals in, say, striking down criminal statutes as void for vagueness or enforcing the Sixth Amendment right to a jury trial, or I think we'll see soon arguing for the right to confront your accuser in court. He's he's expressed real interest in reviving that. Um, and, and I think his vote is gettable there in part because, as you said, he does not care about the consequences at all. So, you know, he issued this decision <laughs> striking down this this a pretty major federal sentencing law last term in a case called Davis. And it was five to four, uh, Gorsuch and the liberals versus all the other conservatives. And Kavanaugh wrote the dissent accusing Gorsuch of driving the court off a constitutional cliff. I mean, Kavanaugh was apoplectic, basically saying, you're soft on crime, Neil. You're letting all these bad people out of prison. And Gorsuch did not care at 
all because that's just who he is. He was hatched in a Federalist Society lab, like Jurassic Park style. He popped <laughs> out of that egg talking about like James Madison's original intent. And uh, and and if, if that leads to him tearing down a bunch of federal criminal statutes that we all may hate for different reasons, but we all hate, you know, for pretty good reasons, then he'll do it. Sorry, last question. Um, I know I said the last one was the last question, but you just made me think of something else. <laughs> just so, and it'll be good because we'll full circle it back to Roberts. Should the worst happen, and I can't speak the name, but should we end up with Amy Coney Barrett as the next Supreme Court justice? Does that make Roberts more of a swing vote? Because now the five of them, Thomas, Alito, Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and Barrett, will be so off the constitutional cliff that Roberts is pushed to defend the institution more than he is now. Right. So I think that if if another liberal justice steps down under Trump and is replaced, Roberts becomes largely irrelevant. Um, irrelevant. All of his okay. all of his institutional concerns are sort of immaterial because you will have five votes to do whatever the hell Leonard Leo wants to do at this moment. Uh, if you have Amy Coney Barrett on the same court as Alito, Thomas, Gorsuch, and Kavanaugh, that court is going to be joyriding right back to 1791. It is going to be obliterating the New Deal, obliterating Roe, Obergefell, uh, Miranda, right? All of these really vital decisions in progressive jurisprudence, I think they're going to be gone. And, and Roberts can complain. He can go along for the ride. He can try to moderate them. But as as Brennan always said, with five votes, you can do anything around here. Um, mm -hmm. And once Roberts is pushed out uh, from the middle and that conservative faction has an extra hardcore uh, nihilist, then Roberts doesn't matter. Yeah. Okay. So great. Yeah. <laughs> I wish I had ended that earlier because now I want to drink. I mean, yeah, we have liquor in the office. I was about to say, like, yeah. you know, it's 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 with Brett Kavanaugh on the Supreme Court, you should always want to drink. Um, <laughs> if you are sober for more than 24 hours in any given period, there's something wrong with you. You are dramatically underestimating what's going on over here at the Supreme it's Court. It's so bad. Thank you so much, Mark. The book is American Justice 2019, The Roberts Courts Arrives by Mark Joseph Stern from Slate. Thank you so much, Mark. Thanks so much for having me on. And thanks, everybody, for listening. You should be subscribing to the show. You should be giving it reviews and not just the stars. Write something about it. Try to use, you know, keywords like law and lawyer when you're describing it in there. You know, those things all matter. To, or rough. Uh, I mean, rough. You could always use the word rough uh, like we did when we were talking about our sponsor, Logical. Uh, you should uh, you should be following us on Twitter. He's at L-E-N-Y-C. I'm at Joseph Patrice, you should be reading Above the Law. You should be listening to The Jabot, which is Catherine Rubino's podcast, the other offerings from the Legal Talk Network, and... Let Mark do his Twitter handle. Oh, yes. Yes, Mark's Twitter handle. My Twitter handle is at MJS underscore DC. Boom. All right. Thanks, everybody. Uh, we will be back in the near future. And, uh, this is our I last episode before Thanksgiving, right? This is our last one before Thanksgiving, yes. Happy so, Turkey happy, Day. Yes. Happy Turkey Holocaust. If you'd like more information about what you've heard today, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. You can also find us at AboveTheLaw.com, ATLRedline.com, iTunes, RSS, Twitter, and Facebook. 
The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of nor are they endorsed by Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.